Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is John Cameron Mitchell. John wrote and starred in the rock musical Hedvig and the Angry Inch, which brought him two Tony Awards on Broadway, Best Revival of a Musical, and a special Tony for performance. For his film adaptation of Hedvig, he was named Best Director at 2001's Sundance Film Festival and garnered a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor. He's appeared in the original productions of Big River, Six Degrees of Separation, The Destiny of Me, Hello Again, and The Secret Garden. He also wrote and directed the film's Short Bus, Rabbit Hole, which received an Oscar nomination for Nicole Kidman, and Neil Gaiman's How to Talk to Girls at Parties. On TV this century, he's performed in The Sandman, Girls, Shrill, Mozart in the Jungle, Vinyl, The Good Fight, Yellow Jackets, City on Fire, and as Joe Exotic in Joe vs. Carol. He's created two scripted podcast series, the musical Anthem Homunculus, starring Glenn Close, Patti Lapone, and Laurie Anderson, and the upcoming Cancellation Island, starring Holly Hunter. And it is my great pleasure to welcome the Revolutions Per Movie, the one and the only John Cameron Mitchell. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm great. So good to see you. You too. Before we get into our lovely discussion of Mick and the Boys, Gimme Shelter, I want to talk to you about Cancellation Island. Ever since I found out about the project, I'm kind of obsessed by it. Can you give a little taste of what it is? Yeah, it's a, a podcast, fictional podcast series, my second one. My last was anthem homunculus and this one i wanted to make it fun and easy we did you know it's a very rat-a-tat you know comedy non-stop comedy in a kind of you know 30 rock way so we recorded in front of a live audience i was directing the actors in front of them holly hunter plays a woman who's a kind of wellness guru who starts a rehab for canceled people and she curates a group cancel people and all the therapists are Gen Z because what they lack in life experience, they make up for uncertainty. And so it's a crazy satire. Not some, I mean, the first couple episodes sort of plays with cancellation culture, but then it, which is, you know, cancellation is really about other things. You know, it's about people's feeling vulnerable. It's about people feeling powerless and maybe taking a bit of power in, um, correcting the world really quickly through kind of social media. Um, and it's a bit of a leftist critique of, of cancel culture, but then quickly shifts into other things, which is generally a kind of panic in this late capitalist period, and also a fear of uh, all news being fake, you know? And if all news is fake, as one character says, then all stories must be true including every conspiracy theory. So it's a, a, an affectionate, loving satire uh, with an incredible cast. And 
And we'd like it to become an animated series as well as we continue our episodes. Oh, amazing. How long it was the piece? You performed it over a couple nights? Two nights. Um, it ends, has ended up being not very long. It's about three hours for uh, seven episodes. Okay. And uh, we have ideas. Uh, Michael Cavadias and I, my co-writer, along with Topic Studios, uh, have plans for future seasons. Um, and we're already anim uh, designing animation uh, characters for to pitch the show as an animated series. Uh, well, I'm just going to set my years aside for uh, for that. That's amazing. Because the, the, the last one you did, <laughs> Homunculus, it was like so ambitious. It was how many, a 10 hour like series? It was how many episodes was it? No, it was really, it was about five and a half to six, okay. but it was very ambitious in terms of scale. So right. we had 40 characters, 40 pieces of music. You know, my, Brian Weller, my composer, was working with orchestras and boys choirs and rock and roll bands and, you know, it, 31 songs, which are all on Spotify, YouTube, under Anthem Homunculus. And uh, it's... It, we kind of wanted to make a cinema, audio cinema rather than audio theater or audio, you know, fictional podcast, which is a long term. So we like audio cinema, which is as complicated as any film or TV show, but you just don't have visuals. Oh, the sound design on it was incredible. When the screen door has a personality while you're listening, you're like, oh, my God, I'm just there. It was incredible, John. Yeah, I love audio as you do, too. Yeah. Well, the Stones, they've been canceled a few times, but they seem to get through it. Um, yeah. You know, I am in a Rolling Stones coven, and we just got our tickets to see them. The tour is sponsored by AARP. Oh. And <laughs> we, as AARP members, got to get early tickets. But it is funny to see them now live because they do change the lyrics on some of their songs. But what was your first introduction to the Stones? Did you hear them when you were young or was it? Well, I would say um, back in the day, I think I was too young for that, but I think there was a certain you know rivalry with the Beatles and the Stones who were better, right? Totally. Uh, in the 60s, they were ascendant uh, in many ways. Uh, Britain had sort of, you know, British invasion was happening. And of course, of course, all the British bands worshipped American performers of the 50s and early 60s, especially R&B legends, you know, uh, Little Richard, the great progenitor, uh, was the mother and father of it all, including punk rock, yep. you know, a black queen, in effect, invented what I think of as rock and roll. Chuck Berry was great, but, you know. I totally agree. Richard was punk. Yeah, he was beyond all of them. And all of them looked to him, um, even more than others. And it's interesting. When we talk about the longevity of these bands like the Stones, which is impressively long. But there's other bands from the, you know, the Isley Brothers are still active. Yeah, and the Beatles covered them. Right, totally. Uh, temptations I saw are coming through. Yeah, I mean, there's different members sometimes, but always a few originals. And, you know, there's bands from in effect, the 50s, you know, and definitely the 60s. So it's like we have to remember uh, these are the white bands that survived. Um, and I was really more of a Beatles person. Yeah, me too. Until I 
until I saw this film. And I was always a little suspicious of Mick, you know, as many are, you know, imitating the black person, being taught to dance by Tina Turner. But the songs are undeniable. And yes, he's not Howlin' Wolf and he's not um, the people he worshipped, you know. But it's in the amalgamation of what you love that coming through your body that something else happens, you know. And though he was he wasn't quite the pure id that he wanted to be, and neither was Bowie. They, you know, Bowie was a absolutely brilliant, one of my you know top three, but he looked to Iggy Pop. You know, he looked to Lou Reed, the other the progenitors. Iggy Pop was, in some ways, what Mick Jagger wanted to be—a pure avatar of of id and and iggy again like little richard were fonts of punk because iggy's refrain on stage is i am you yes he would twist his body and, and cut himself and you know put himself in the strangest positions but he was performance art you know yeah he was he was out of control and yet in control and um and Mick was always felt somewhat in control until you see this movie. Yes. You know, Keith is the one we think of as, you know, happy, blissfully out of control, though the songs were always tight, right? And he's always alive. And you can tell he was always cranky about Mick's, uh, let's think, uh, think about him as maybe over cerebral and less, you know, less um heart based yeah but when you see mick in in the rolling in, in get give me shelter there is a sense of okay he may not be the pure avatar that biggie popper little richard was but he is a shaman so if yeah. he can't go into the trance everyone else is right under his direction he was never you he was never us right he pop was us yeah mick was his you know, his majesty's satanic, whatever. Oh, no. Even in um, Rock and Roll Circus, which they, you know, they didn't yeah. put out because the who blew him away. They're doing Sympathy for the Devil. He pulls his shirt off and he's got a Satan image, like watercolored on his, you know, chest. And you're like, OK, like that's going to wash off tonight. Yeah, it's fashion. He is. Yes. You know, not Darby Crash or Sid Vicious or whatever. You know, he is. In control, he's the aristocrat of rock. Um, in some ways, Bowie was too, but Bowie was much was more experimental. What's so interesting about this film? It's hitting him at a really strange time because yeah. they were starting to second guess themselves. They were broke because of their relationship with Alan Klein and Abco. They were feeling older. You know, there was a whole new scene happening in San Francisco that was just blowing up. Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane all these free shows and like a new counterculture and they were, they felt out of step. And so before you get to this film, you know, the stones had invited over rock Scully, who was the grateful dead's manager to be like, how can we do this? How can we arrange this? Cause the stones hadn't toured in three years. They never, they weren't at Woodstock. They weren't hippie. No, exactly. They hadn't played in three years. And when they started coming selling the tickets in the States, 
they were super criticized for a underpaying the black artists that were performing in front, you know, opening for them, Phoebe King and Ike and Tina Turner, but also their ticket prices were three times as high as they'd ever been before. And so they felt pressure to put on some sort of free show. And you can see, you know, in this film, they are so, they're just in a weird space. The interviews that they have at the beginning, like the press interviews. He's a dick. Nick is a dick. Yeah. Yeah. And they weren't actually sincere. You know, what was ascendant at that moment was, was community. It was, you know, yes, it was, you could say it's in, Altamont was the end of the 60s in many ways. And there's some key shots and scenes we can talk about that, that illustrate that beautifully. Yes. But in in their catching up with the late 60s, they ended it in yeah. a weird way. Yeah. Because they weren't they weren't of necessarily getting what was going on. Right. And that's why the hiring of the Hells Angels and the other things which are as you know far from hippie as possible. Yeah. So they were trying to get back on top. They they're always brilliant. You know, you see them recording is that Wild Horses? Yeah, Wild Horses. And there's that amazing shot of like Charlie Watts just sitting there for 50 seconds just kind of listening. I love when the film just slows down. Yes. Yes. And it's an amazing structure. Yeah, well obviously they're about the work. They're not so much about the culture. They're they're they've already been huge stars, so they're not with the people. They don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. They're kind of, you know, long in the tooth children, you know, who are in their later twenties, looking a bit older. Um and definitely trying to get with the kids. Granted, everybody wanted to see them. You know, yeah. Ultimate was powerful. Yeah. Um, but it, they, um, they were toying with forces beyond their control. And Maisel's Brothers, this is one of their great films, of course. The other two are probably Grey Gardens and Salesman. I actually met Albert Maisel's before he died up in Harlem, where his uh, office was. Amazing. And... He was a great saint of documentary filmmaking, as was D.A. Pennebaker, who did Don't Look Back and uh, the Ziggy Stardust movie, Chris Hedges. You know, these were, these are the seminal New York uh, 60s and 70s documentarians who set the pace for everybody else, were yes. good people, cared deeply. I think of Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman in the same category. People who care about their work so much. Their documentarians are the saints of filmmaking because they have to spend so much time and there's so little money and they care. So with this structure, obviously, you see them a little bit at the beginning as you do a little bit in Grey Gardens. And in some ways, we can talk about the other shots, but th there's one shot that to me embodies everything that the Maisels are about okay. uh, in their own filmmaking, which is when there's a kind of uh, stockier, kind of sand, uh, gingery looking guy who's in extreme acid situation. And he's kind of writhing around on the ground. But then he goes up and grabs one of the Maisels. Do you remember that? And he sort of yeah. looks at him. And he's he's a little bit in distress before that, but then they look each other in the eye 
Yeah. And Maisel's kind of says, I'm right here. Yeah. I'm not judging you. I'm with you. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, he pulls off his, yeah. his uh, headphones and he's, yeah. yeah. Puts down the mic and he looks at him and gives him the smile as if to say, I see you and I'm with you. I'm not just observing you. Yeah. That is why little Edie in Great Gardens, why the salesmen and salesmen, uh, and why the Stones trusted them because they were good people. You could just tell. They're not like the Nick Broomfields or the other documentarians who are just looking for shit, right? They're looking for trouble. And even what's his name? Thin Blue Line. I feel like he's, it's all about him a little bit sometimes. Or When we did the episode on Dig, the Brian Jonestown right. massacre thing, we had the tour manager on for it and he was like, this film is a lie. He's like, it's out of order. They only showed the bad stuff. I believe that. Yeah, the, that film looks like the fucking right? Yeah, they're like, they pitted us against, so it was like good versus bad, smart versus yes. dumb. And it is kind of incredible that the Stones... They worked with Godard. They worked with the Maisel brothers. They worked with Robert Frank and Hal Ashby and Martin Scorsese. It's kind of an incredible run of people they had access to. But it's so funny because Let's Spend the Night Together is not a very good Hal Ashby film. Shine a Light is not that great a Martin Scorsese documentary. And I do feel like this is the one film, along with the Godard film, where the stone it feels like the stones are not in control of it. They're not in control yes. of the narrative. And I love that, the, that the, the filmmakers decided to start the film. You know there's a tragedy coming. You know, they're talking about it. They're playing audio um, tapes of the Hells Angels calling into a radio show to defend themselves. Very good structure because you see a song, you see a, a good performance of a song, then you go to them watching the performance on a moviola, and then you get the information about the death. Yes. Um, on the uh, during Altamont, and then so you have that in your mind while so there is suspense there while you're doing looking at other performances. Yes, there it's in a, a verite film in many ways. It's not comment, commenting on it a lot. You're watching Marvin or Melvin Belli, you know the crazy lawyer who's such a character loves the camera. Um, you see the other organized, you see their manager, the British guy who's like, get the fuck off the stage, whatever his name was. You see the tour manager? Probably? He is, yes. Yeah, he's not their manager. No. And then there's the other guy, uh, the baby-faced guy who's like, yeah, we're going to have a great party. You know, what, what was his name? The uh, other organizer. The the guy who was did. from Woodstock? The, the I think so, Michael, yeah. Michael, yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of just came in at the end to be like, I mean, Woodstock was only four months before this yeah he so, came in as, a, as an advisor and exactly i think it was probably quite helpful but then obviously the hell's angels was a great mistake and you start seeing this incredible uh, the second half is is gangbusters you know once you're at at the altamont and the jefferson airplane and who was it that was playing at the beginning like not well santana played first but they didn't they didn't show right. that. And then it was Jefferson Airplane played. And that's where right. the, the first violence went down. There's there, like yes. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young played, too. But they didn't sh um, they didn't show it. And 
During Crosby, Still, Nash and Young's performance, Stephen Stills was being poked by Hell's Angels in his leg with a bicycle spoke. And he just kept turning around and being like, what the fuck, you know? And they got the hell out of there. I mean, they did like very few songs. The footage still exists of Santana and Stills. It has to. And also the Flying Burrito Brothers played before Jefferson Airplane, but they show them earlier. And the Grateful Dead were supposed to play, but they also were like, they had heard shit was going down and they're like, this is going to push the evening even later. Let's just get this done, you know? Yeah. But yeah, the the, Hel- uh, the Hells Angels go to town on Marty Ballin from the Jefferson Airplane. Well, obviously there's a mixture of cultures there. And yeah. even Grace Slick is like, we need the angels to protect us from weirdos, but then the yeah. angels are being weird. And it's, you just see, you know, incredible moments that speak for themselves so powerfully. The maze will stay on one one person while shit happens. Think of the guy who's really spinning out. Oh my God, uh, that's amazing. Behind Bowie. And then the angels, after you know a long time, notice this guy freaking out. And, and get him the fuck off the stage. Remember the one who's staring at... Yeah, you don't know if he's a Hell's Angel at first. It's just a dude on the stage. It looks like a Hell's Angel. Just melting out, like, and it's a super long take, and Mick is kind of coming in and out of the frame, performing right by sides. It was a 39-inch stage that they had originally put a rope around to hold yeah. people back. It was yeah. so ill-conceived. But yeah, yeah. The, what they captured is incredible. That one of the most amazing scenes I always forget is just the dog walking across the stage. Yeah, it's yes. just like, how did they get that? That's incredible. I know, and obviously the most powerful thing that I think people remember there are two shots as the trouble is about to begin. I mean, the extreme trouble, meaning the guy who's stabbed, who seems to have had a gun. They don't really get into the facts. They just mm-hmm. show the gun. It's a black guy in a green suit, you know. And the one thing I wish I'd known more about was that person. They kind of let let the victim, they, they don't go into it, which feels like a mistake to me. Granted, if he's someone with a gun, I mean, there's more of a story there. But the two shots that say end of the 60s are a shot of the audience and the, the young guy kind of trying to talk to Mick, like shaking his head, like it's, it's all over now. And then it's so powerful and he's trying to communicate to Mick and you don't know what Mick is responding. And then there's the girl, the blonde girl, just weeping yeah and she and next to her is some guy in a kind of drugged smile but she's seeing it all um she's seeing the end of a certain innocence and and Mick kind of doesn't really respond like he starts dancing again that is amazing where he just stops stares for a bit into the audience because what happens is it's like a fight ensues and then the crowd kind of backs away from the stage to create a space for the violence to yes. happen, except for a couple people front. And 
Mick just kind of stops and watches something happen. And then it's like he remembers, oh, shit, I'm Mick Jagger. And he just, yes. in the most clumsy way, just kind of goes back into this, like, you know, kind of fake-out performance. It's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Because he's not aware of what's going on. He's trying to calm everyone down Yeah, in his uh, half-American, half-British accent. And he, uh, it's beyond him. It's all beyond him. And it doesn't necessarily warm me to him. You know, in some ways, you know, the Charlie Watts, you know, talking about listening to the uh, Hells Angels on the radio. And he's the one that you're kind of like, wow, you know, he seems to be a bit more aware of the insanity of it all. Uh, and also, at least embarrassed by their lack of connection to what's going on. But and Keith tends, Keith tends to be just in the guitar, and but there is this moment where he sees the violence out in the audience, and it's like you, you stop that, you know. Which is, you know, mixed thing is more of a kind of messiah. People, why are we fighting? What are we fighting for? We could have a really beautiful time, you know. Yeah, it's it's such a distance from, you know, the Madison Square Gardens footage where. He's like, oh, I yeah. busted a button on my trousers. You don't want my trousers to fall down now, do you? And that's a that's something he said every night. Like he said that every single night of that tour. It was like, I mean, make it best with a gigolo. You know, he was yeah. like a he wasn't, you know, your lover. He was your your good time. And it, but when he's you know that junk jumping Jack Flash where it all yeah. happens. Some of the most undeniable powerful scene, and then the naked woman's trying to get on stage, which is very disturbing. We don't know what happens to her. Remember, she's yeah. like climbing over people. Yeah, it looks like hell. It does. It's it completely looks like hell. You know, it, and it's kind of amazing. I guess for a lot of people, I mean, you look at photos of how immense the crowd was. You couldn't tell, you couldn't hear, you couldn't see what that there was all this devastation going on just down the hill. Yeah, it's a very strange and disturbing thing to watch. You also get, you know, also looking at it in the modern view, you used to, you know, there's that incredible footage of Tina Turner, mm -hmm. who again, you know, make worship. But she's singing I've Been Loving You Too Long and doing her sexual, you know, the microphone is a penis thing, which she does really well, but it's very, it's spooky because you're hearing Ike yeah. singing back to her. And it's like, oh God, you get the feeling he sort of made her do this and it feels creepier. I agree. And, but God knows, you know, Tina is everything Nick wanted to be, but couldn't quite do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he basically cuts her performance down to being like, he watches and he's like, oh, it's good to have a chick once in a while, you know? It's like he doesn't go like, my hero, oh my God, you know? No, he's he's kind of slightly, you know, dismissing. And it's like, are you out of your mind? Agreed, yeah. There's a thousand versions of you. Exactly. Yes. He, and, yeah, and Keith wrote the, you know, I'm sure you and Keith wrote great songs, but I'd rather hear her do that, Yeah. to be honest. And Mick and uh, and Mick doing he doesn't he's not good at backup, but you know Keith of course is a great guitarist. 
And so it's funny because it, it, it re- redefines my somewhat disdain for Mick Jagger um, and his fashionista approach to the music, which certainly he had his, his finger on the pulse and he had a great sense of humor, but it's just, he's not, I don't think he's the great that he wants, wanted it to be, you know, and though the, the, the band was, you know, was, was great, but it was just like, you know, I was even watching with a young black friend here in New Orleans who didn't really know much about them. You know, he's like 23 into animation here and he was getting bored during their performances, but he wasn't <laughs> during Tino's. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, it's a bit wanky. Um, and you're also reminded of how perfect vocals seem now and you know, people had ear, mon- ear monitors now. Back then, they could barely hear themselves. And they were off and off pitch. And But the feeling is there, you know, and it's it's okay. It's just that when he sings Gimme Shelter, you really want Mary Clayton singing back up. Totally. You? Well, this film was my gateway into The Stones, too. I had to reverse engineer my relationship with The Stones because I heard Devo's satisfaction before I heard their satisfaction. Oh, you did? You know, so That's by the cool. time I heard the real version... I was like, that sounds like outer space music to me. And my parents only had one Stones record, which was Satanic's Majesties. And that's, you know, not necessarily, I know people love it, but it's not necessarily the best representation of what their yeah. songs could be. So the the album that comes around this time to Get Your Yaya's Out is such a distillation of how out of tune and wonky they could be. And then they could do something as beautiful as like love in vain. And it's just like the slide work and the passion and it's just, everything is working and they're in it. And then, you know, they do like a Chuck Berry song and it's just like, don't, it doesn't even sound like, you know, the song or how, what's going on. Yeah. It's, and I, I I felt kind of, I kind of fell in love with them a bit then because I was like, they're, you know, the Beatles were, they didn't really show those cracks as much, you know, in terms of being like, you know, it's it's not good enough. Let's do it again. But I thought it was kind of I was kind of impressed that the Stones would put out something as imperfect. Um, again, like you said, Gimme Shelter. Without the backing vocals soaring in and, you know, just carrying the power is a different song. It's It's just it would not be the same without someone else coming in to just destroy to sing having been woken up at night yeah but yeah i mean so it's wonderful to see the craft the editing you know the story itself is i found myself very moved when especially when those two people i talked about the boy talking to mike to make rather and then the blonde woman weeping is just like the most some of the most indelible images of that time equivalent to you know, Joan Didion's slashing towards Bethlehem, you know, is again, like a, a more skeptical view of, you know, of uh, the, you know, the love generation, which had great intentions, but the dysfunction, the oppression, whatever, you know, that it all came from is still there. And the drugs 
for some activated them to find themselves and others destroyed them and it, and it, uh, it loosed, uh, certain demons. And there's, when you're in a, you know, nowadays it's, you know, we think much more about, uh, safety and, you know, all of that is like, this could never happen. You know, there would be a million lawsuits after this concert. Um, but the freedom of it too, you, you've never seen such unselfconscious audience members or band members. You know, nowadays everyone is so posed. That footage of them before the concert happens, just them capturing two wasted girls trying to find their friends, giggling and laughing and just kind of like so many amazing characters are coming across. Like you said, the, the guy who's pulling off Maisel's stuff and kind of wanting to connect with them. And then there'll be somebody being like, hey, she's having a baby. It's, you know, over here. And then somebody jumps in front of the camera and they're like in a wizard outfit and they're twirling a wand yeah. with a star on it. And it's just like the whole yeah. thing is just this crazy, like yeah. it's connected, but everyone seems like they're in their own movie and they're there for yes. different reasons. Yes. I'm sure we're also not seeing the beautiful things that happened there. I'm sure there were gorgeous, you know, connections of people. Yeah. It was on 50,000 so that, you know, it wasn't all bad, but obviously the chaos uh, was enough to shift a way of thinking right. that was very, very strong. And, you know, the show I'm on touring now, Cassette Roulette with Amber Martin, has, we're trying to capture sort of that feeling in the 70s where anything can happen. And, you know, we spin a wheel and that chooses our songs, you know, from, from our careers. And we've been getting, we're, we're trying to get back to that feeling of freedom and connection to the audience, you know, hopefully without the hard drugs and without the, without the darkness um nowadays getting in the same room feels like a revolutionary act as well as a very vital act when everyone feels so separated by digital stuff and that's partly why i've moved to new orleans you know i have a a, a ballroom a venue in my house uh, that used to be in a cult church and starting to have events there you know tonight i'm gonna have a big screen movie night and food and you know it's like that feeling of uh, art for art's sake, community for community's sake, still does exist in in a lot of towns. I think the big cities it's harder because the rents are now beyond right. uh, in the coasts, especially. So I'm in the Gulf Coast, so I'm finding my own my own place here and fitting into a culture that is ancient and and uh, welcoming too, as long as you're you're not a, a poser or a slumber. You're ready to join in, you know, and that, that is the good side of uh, what I learned from the 60s and 70s. It's like there is collaboration is still possible and it's very healthy. Right. Well, as a performer, has there ever been a time where you're like, I'm a little freaked out by the scene out there? Not too bad. There was one show <laughs> off Broadway where a guy was drunk and came up on stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I, you know, I usually can deal with stuff. Um, but that one was just like, wow, you know, and I, I didn't quite know how to, you know, calm him down. He eventually came off. He was 
he was benevolent, but he, he was difficult to you know get him off. Um, around the same time, I remember I used to do the car wash, which is basically a lap yes. dance, you know, and we'd have a special seat, you know, sometimes for celebrities, and I would give them a car wash. I remember giving Joey Ramone a car wash, which is hard to do. Very tall. You have to climb up on the, on the seat arms to give them a car wash. And, and once I think Calvin Klein was in the seat, and he stuck his finger up my ass. Oh, my God, John. While I was lap dancing, which, you know, was a first. I didn't know. I, I was thrown by that. I, I couldn't recover from that one. Um, but not anything dangerous. I mean, we've had people pass out in shows and stop the right. shows. Amber and I at Prospect Park. and But not anything that felt dangerous. Generally, I know how to kind of diffuse, hug it out, right. remind people that they're being seen, that they, you know, there's no need to panic. You know, sometimes I've had some stalkers that have crossed some lines, but but not dangerously. Um, people who assume a certain intimacy or want a certain in- intimacy, and I tend to be more "come on in." And other friends of mine are like, "You can't do that." It's, you know, you're letting in someone who might be dangerous or you know unstable. And I'm like, "Yeah, I mean." My first stalker who was from Japan was super nice and uh I just kinda waited her out and then she grew up and moved on. Wow, amazing. <laughs> One of the things I love about you is pretty much every time we meet for dinner in Portland, you're like, I met this person on the plane. She's really interesting. I wanna yeah. bring her to dinner. And I'm like, totally. Yeah. Like you I feel like you have a way of connecting with people and, and just talking to people that yeah will bring them down to a good space to to want to um come along so which i think is a total skill yeah which i think is something that like you can yeah. feel mick jagger wants to be that you know yes. like he come he steps <laughs> he his first within 30 seconds of being at altamont he's punched in the face you know but he has this oh, he has this look before it happens that he's like, I'm here. We're all here. Like he's just kind of bouncing and that's like reality. Maybe he wanted to be the hippie, but it just was not possible. Um you know, he's not made of staples or, or <laughs> you know Dolly Parton. No. And Bowie probably knew that. You know, he's not gonna walk into the crowd, right? He's no. He's an aristocrat. Iggy Pop will. <laughs> you know, there's a difference. And Bowie wasn't punk. He was an inspiration for punk, but he wasn't in the in the mosh pit, was he? No. Um, and that's fine. We don't want him in there. He'd get messed up. And, you know, so I find a real joy in um, in checking out different elements of, especially musical history, cinematic history, which is sometimes, you know, dependent or connected to musical history. You know, there's a reason the new American cinema that started in the late sixties and, you know, kind of, they say kind of started to fade out once Jaws came in in the late seventies. It happened at the same time. It was youth culture. It was Vietnam. It was, it was uh, Watergate. It was young people not buying into the Hollywood system at that point, which was, you know, musicals and war movies and 
uh, slightly more artificial seeming things. Um, and Easy Rider, and to some extent, Bonnie and Clyde were kind of the hits of the uh, new cinema of uh, in the US. There was new cinema in other countries that were already developing the new wave of France, the, uh, the realism movement of, of Italy in the 50s. And America was having its, its, its new wave. I mean, they had an earlier version of it, which was Cassavetes. Right. You know, late 50s, Cassavetes was the father of American independent film, for sure. And one of my top three filmmakers. Mine too. I got paid. Yeah. But then in the late 60s, everybody else caught up with Cassavetes, who was a beatnik in some ways. Yeah, shadows and faces and all that. Yeah. yeah. And the hippie alternative side, which curdled into punk in the 70s, um, Hollywood was out of ideas and they gave the keys to the car to the kids. And sometimes it was incredible. They were incredible films, you know, that came from Scorsese and Coppola and Hal Ashby and Bob Rafelson and, and uh, Monty Hellman. They were these groundbreaking things. Even if they weren't great, they really were seminal. Mm-hmm. You know, they really pushed things. And but some of them actually were great. You know, I love Dog Day Afternoon and the conversation and Network and Nashville and Three yeah. Women. You know, Amazing. these are great great, great films that are still the best American films for me. Uh, and then certainly being there, and you know, there were just so many. And this is one of those films. You know, this is one from that era that uh, launched, a, you know, a million documentarians, you know, I think. It's kind of amazing it came out. Mick Jagger was like, I don't want this to come out. And um, the the Hell's Angels did not want it to come out. Mick was being really elusive. The Maisels had put their own money into the film. They'd been paid a bit to shoot Madison Square Gardens and given money to go shoot Altamont, even though they didn't know that was going to happen at the time. And they were stuck. Like, they're like, we are screwed. Like, we are going to, you know, we're going to lose everything. It, Donald Camel, who co-directed Performance, the film that Mick's in, basically was like, I got it. I'll, I'll get Mick to sign off on it. And it took forever. I guess it was, do, do you know Baby Jane Holzler? I remember the name, yeah. She basically got the film funded. She basically was like, I'll help you get this released. Did she activate some investors? Or did she did, wow. yeah. And and then it found its way. I mean, like Pauline Kale did not like it. You know, she was really in the review. She says, how does one review this picture? It's like reviewing the footage of President Kennedy's assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald's murder. The free concert was staged and lighted to be photographed and 300,000 people who attended it were the unpaid cast of thousands. The violence and murder weren't scheduled, but the Maisel brothers hit the cinema verite jackpot. If events are created to be photographed, is the movie that records them a documentary? Or does it function in a twilight zone? Is it the cinema of fact when the facts are manufactured for the cinema? Why is she saying that it was manipulated, the facts were manipulated? She just was saying it was an inevitable tragedy that was going to unfold. That all these people 
she just they were like expecting they would capture something that would go down oh she was saying it's a setup for something terrible to happen to be filmed well you could say the same about Woodstock, but she didn't like the fact they were focusing on that it seems very unlike pauline kale to kind of avoid dark side i agree and but it's something must have affected her and i the film this time i watched it i've seen the film many times it was really tragic watching it this time. I felt a lot of, I was like really upset watching the film this time in a way that I'd had distance from it before. Yeah. When I was young, I was more like, this is amazing. Right. But this time I got, I got very sad. Me too. While also missing the spontaneity of that moment. But of course that pure self-conscious spontaneity can also create lack of boundaries in other ways that aren't always right that's that's the the danger of being wide open you know it's like can we be open and still be still be respectful and safe you know and but it it is an incredible accomplishment to you know to show that you know i don't think they're focusing on the negative but obviously the worst thing happened so my only downside to it was I wanted to know more of the story of the person, but it also wasn't the kind of, and the fact that he was a black guy who was probably not, even you see what he's wearing, it's a different scene, you know what I mean? He's not necessarily, and who who the hell knows why he was there? I mean, I'm sure there is more information about that. Like I would love to know some of these people who were they? Where are they now? You know, the, the crying girl, was she identified? You know what I mean? There's a really amazing book that I would recommend to people um, called Altamont by Joel Sullivan. Um, they talked to um, Meredith Hunter's girlfriend who came with him and they were just excited for the show, but she knew that he had a gun and was surprised he had a gun and was bringing it. And some people said he was trying to climb on stage and he'd been pulled off before. But there's so many contradictory statements, you know, in terms of what happened. And and a lot of people just did not want to get involved. They just were scared of, you know, getting drawn into the violence and uh, being punched out um, by the Hells Angels. But it's a, it's kind of an amazing book and it does give more insight into some of the characters that helped make this happen that aren't in the film and also about what happened with the trial afterwards and you know who Meredith Hunter was so I I recommend that book but the film does not does not um touch on that no and I was noticing um I'm actually looking him up right now Meredith Hunter an 18 year old from Berkeley you know they wanted to, he went with his girlfriend. His sister said, watch out for the racism in the outer reaches of the Alameda County, which is, instead it prompted him to take a 22 caliber gun. I, well, I guess it happened during Under My Thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the concert went on. That's right. Yeah. It's edited in a way to make it feel like it's happening right at the end of the concert. And that then the Mm -hmm. stones just get the hell out of there. 
Yeah, and he he basically died before they could get him, you know, any assistance. So he died at the site. Well, God knows how to get anybody out of there, right? Yeah, and that's covered in the yeah. book too. There's a lot about how underprepared they were, and Bill Graham, who was very not very helpful with them putting on the show because there was conflict, basically threatening a lot of people who usually helped, you know, get health organizers and doctors and people at these things. He just kind of clogged the wheels of it. It's it's a really complicated story, but really, you know, the fact is the Stones were like, we're still having the show. We're moving this. Within 36 hours, we, we have to move this event. And they didn't say, well, screw it. Let's just, you know, let's cancel it. Because the other venue just had better logistics, better stage, more security. And Mick yeah. also on this tour did not want any cops on his premises. He's like, I don't want to see a cop. I don't want them around. There was just a sense of, there was kind of a hippie innocence to everything. Yeah. Well, there is, I'm also reading that there is a, um, there's a short film called Locked 63, okay. Grave C, which is about Meredith Hunter, um, who was killed by a guy named Passaro, who was a, who was a Hells Angels angel, who actually died drowned in a lake in 85 in a sort of suspicious way. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, there's also a documentary that I noticed here at the uh, Library of Congress. It's called uh, Rolling Stones, Hells Angels, and Ultima, A New View. Okay. So there's uh, there's more information. It's it's a never-before-seen home movie from Ultima. Wow. Uh, it's new. Yeah, it's new footage, and it's available. Uh, if you look it up online, there's a digital viewing copy. Uh, on the Library of Congress, if you just look up Altamont, there's no sound, yeah. but it gives a little more information. What were some of the influences in some of your body of work, films or music documentaries that you wanted to bring into, like, say, for instance, Hedvig or How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is, you know, takes place in, you know, yeah. uh, post-punk London. Um, were there certain things that you sure. dragged in to to make these things so your films are have yeah. such a great reality in terms of they they don't feel fake when it's presenting a genre or an era. Well, you know, I grew up uh, definitely absorbed with music and it, it was very eclectic. You know, I thought all music was valid. I mean, it was the seventies. So it's like, there was a more ecumenical feeling about music and I grew up in the military. So, uh, which is very racially diverse. And so, a lot of black forms, especially funk, were huge for me as a kid. When I DJ, it was a lot of old funk and later disco. And then, you know, so I've, I've always been into, you know, great uh, soulful music, as well as rock and roll, new wave, country, glam, punk. And they all come from some of the same fonts but there was also theater music. So I loved, you know, Ain't Misbehavin' and got me into Fats Waller and early jazz and uh, all that jazz, the uh, 
Fosse film was really influential for me. Oh, right. Uh, which also was early uh, 20th century music. And then there was, uh, I would say, uh, those documentaries like Gimme Shelter, like Ziggy Stardust, like Don't Look Back, like uh, Cocksucker Blues, mm -hmm. um, Rock and Roll Circus, especially had the incredible performance by The Who. And so all of my films, I was, you know, showing my cinematographer some of these when we were doing Head Big and I was saying, how does it get, what does it look like that? And he's like, well, they're shooting 16 millimeter. There's a lot of backlighting, but you see there's less information in the face because it's not high res. And I was like, it makes it more mythological. And I'm like, I want to do that. So I shot on film, I considered 16, but 35 was better. There's more information but not too much information. And uh, just the beauty of those films, the spontaneity, this, the, this is happening now. It's not mediated. It's not fixed. You know, it's not tuned. Um, you believe it. And there were also uh, documentaries like Watt Stacks, which oddly was directed by the same guy who did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Really? I love that film. I didn't know the same director. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, a documentary about the Stax labels. Huge concert in L.A., kind of a memorial to the Watts riots, very much about self-empowerment and Jesse Jackson. Uh, Mavis Staples, my, my heroine. Yes. The singer of the Staples singer. I have a commissioned stained glass portrait of her in my my house next to my bowie stained glass from the lazarus video and jenna rollins my favorite actress so music was always in the air and it was always something influencing my films some are musicals i mean short bus is not exactly a musical but there's tons of music in it live music as well a lot of the actors in short bus perform in the soundtrack uh, how to talk to girls it's a punk it's a fictional punk scene in 1977 in croydon with nicole kidman as the kind of uh malcolm mclaren you know uh vivian westwood type yeah and we used old songs from the damned but we also used a lot of new stuff you know that my composer Brian Weller and and uh, Martin uh, Martin Tomlinson, who was in a great band called Selfish Cunt in 2000, he created, as well as um, new pornographers, uh, you know, actor Ezra Furman, people who are working today who have a punk feeling. So I love inviting people in uh, to make stuff. You know, my, I made my own benefit album that was collaborative during covid and you know people like alinda Sagara, hooray for the river riffraff ezra Furman, uh went to marcella you know people uh created tracks and i would write over them and it's like i'm a, i'm a musical person for sure i don't think of myself as a great singer i think of myself as a actor a singing actor and uh but I, I have to tell you, I've no, I haven't had more fun um, doing a concert tour, a, a 
till the one I'm doing now, Cassette Roulette, which is very loose and we're smoking a lot of pot on stage. I'm getting back to, as in my grandpa's 60 year old mode, you know, reminding kids who sometimes feel trapped and sure. hidden behind uh, screens are, um, I'm encouraging them to get in the room again. I'm encouraging them to uh, find their, find their collaborators uh, and become their lovers, you know, uh, creatively as well as, you know, romantically. And it's all the same energy for me. Yeah. Sex, creativity, rock and roll, soul music. You no, know, it's all there. Being in New Orleans where music is everywhere feels right. You know, people performing in my house uh, is the joy that I'm experiencing right now. That's amazing, John. And I love that there's a danger to not having a set list. You and Amber also are just such an incredible team in terms of how you push each other in your performances. If you have a chance to see it, you have to see it because you will you will come out changed, you'll come out sweaty, and you again, it, yeah, you'll feel that connection that you're talking about that has been missing for a while. We'll be doing a few shows, and we've got Austin coming up. Just go to my Instagram, John Cameron Mitchell. You'll see a link. Yeah, um, I guess the other thing I would say is there, but watch for Cancellation Island uh, on your where you get your podcasts, and hopefully it'll be a animated series as well. That's great, John. Thank you so much for being part of this. At the end of every show, I ask the same question, but I tailor it depending on the film. So, over the course of the song "Street Fighting Man," on Mick Jagger touches his hair 22 times and rubs his face. So on a scale from one being the lowest and 22 being the highest, how many touches of Mick Jagger touching his hair and brushing his face do you give this film on a scale from one to 22 Mick Jagger face brushes? Uh, I would say 20, 20. 20 is what I have written down here. It's perfect. You're also the first guest that has pissed while answering the question. Yeah. So I really appreciate you doing that because, you know. I pissed on the fly, so it would make noise. <laughs> now I'm flushing. There you go. John, it's been so good to see you. Love you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for your insights. No problem, babe. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. The show is a completely independent affair. So the best way to support the show is through our Patreon at patreon.com slash revolutions per movie, where you can get weekly bonus episodes and exclusive goods sent to you just for joining. You can also follow us on social media at revolutions per movie and find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.